0: So, Corinne, I am so glad to have you on the show today. Um, if I understand correctly, it's Corinne Boley is how you pronounce it? Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Great. So, um, folks, I, I've got a treat for you today. We are going to have so much fun. I've been looking forward to this interview for, what was it, Corinne? I think about three months ago we connected? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perseverance always wins out in the end. <laughs> So let's see here. I'm going to just sort of give people a sense of who you are, a little tiny mini picture. You are uh, just newly turned 18 years old, correct? Mm-hmm. All right. And you grew up in upstate New York. You are a homeschooler. And you a uh, couple of years ago, because of homeschooling the flexibility it offers, you went ahead and got your high school diploma and jumped into college, which is great. But along the way, you had the time and opportunity to dive into writing, and I think at this point you have about six or seven published novellas, novels, works out there already. Is that true? Yes, I often lose count, honestly. Yeah. (laughs) And I think you have also been doing some ghost writing and writing some articles about topics that you find interesting as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to start doing more of that if I
0: can. I'm looking right now at the um, Darkness Rise of Forbidden Power. So you sent this to me, and this is, is this technically a novel or a novella? A novel. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Uh, 172 pages, so it's not too ginormous, but it's a full story. I mean, I I enjoyed this a lot. And I was wondering if we could just start off with Darkness, Rise of Forbidden Power and a little bit of the story behind your how you came to want to write the story, because I believe your siblings were a little bit involved in that. And then also we'll dive into some of the publishing stuff. So this story, tell us a little bit about where it came from.
1: Well, I wanted to write a book, and I didn't know what I wanted to write a book about, so I wrote a list of random plot ideas, and for some reason, eventually, um, a little fragment, I guess, of the plot just came out onto the paper. And I liked it, so I tried to elaborate on it, and as I started adding things to it, I guess, just kind of built the world of Mysticus.
0: Mm hmm Is this the only book in that world?
1: So far, I'm almost done with the sequel. It's kind of been taking me a while, though.
0: Okay. Okay, so that we're we're not going to like just have this one dive into this world. You're going to allow us to explore it further.
1: It's going to be a trilogy, and then I've also been thinking about doing a spin-off series, but that'll really depend on my other projects.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Isn't it really awesome when you create a world that you enjoy and you realize that it's not dependent upon just, it's not character-driven, meaning once that character story arc is over, there's nothing else to do. That is a part of it, but you have, as you said, these spinoff opportunities, these other places you can go. Isn't that great?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that that happens a lot more with fantasy, in my opinion, at least in my writing, mm-hmm. because it's just like a whole different world, and there are so many other civilizations and other uh, species and everything.
0: Well, and I think also in a way, I don't know. Have you ever read um, Anne McCaffrey? I don't think so. I would. I'll send you a link. I would recommend that you check her out. She technically viewed herself as someone who wrote sci-fi, and there are specific reasons why. But um, she had a world that she created. You know, this whole concept and this planet was called Pern, and it was like, oh my gosh! I think there's thirty-five books that have been written based on Pern. And wow. all of the, all of them have they don't have an inner relationship like literally the characters from one book are going to show up in the the other book, right? Um there's one book called Moretta which is like I don't know, like you know, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier than the original trilogy for example, but in the original trilogy everyone knows about the ballad of Moretta. And everyone in in their world is affected by this thing that this woman did a long time ago. So then after those two trilogies came out, you know, Anne McCaffrey's like, oh, I'm going to actually go flesh out Moretta's whole story and and write it as its own story. And she just kept doing this in her world. And it was really very nice for me as a reader to have this world I could go to. and, And when I wanted to be somewhere really amazing, I knew that I could go there and there were a lot of places to be. It was cool.
1: That kind of reminds me of The Hunger Games, um, how she went back and did the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And there are lots of connections between
0: The Hunger Games series and then also the past. Exactly. No, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Okay, good. So there's going to be more. I'm looking forward to that. And let's see. So you mentioned earlier that you are definitely a plotter and not a pantser. And for People who are listening right now, folks, if you um, if you don't know what those terms are, to put it really briefly, the idea of a pantser is that, you know, your pants are on fire or you, you know, you're flying by the edge of your pants, edge of your chair, something like that. Anyways, pantsers are people who just feel like their best creative outlet comes spontaneously as they're writing. And plotters, that's pretty obvious. They're people who feel like they're more effective if they outline something so tell us a little bit about how you view yourself
1: well if someone were to look at all of my different writing projects they would be able to tell which ones i plotted out because those are the only ones i've ever finished (laughs) so i've tried dancing before and i usually get about a chapter in sometimes less and then i just drop the project and i've done that with probably hundreds and that's that's not even an over exaggeration I, I come up with new ideas all the time. And then if I'm too excited, I'll just start writing. And I just have to plot out as many details as possible. I go scene by scene, chapter by chapter, and I do lots of um, background on all the characters
2: mm-hmm.
1: and just everything I can think of.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love that part of, of. I mean, what what would you say? Would you say what goes into the book is like, is that, is that like, 2% or 5% or 10% of what you actually have in your mind about that story? Like how like how much is in your head that the rest of us, you know, never see?
1: Uh, it's, it's hard to say, but there's definitely a lot. I sometimes kind of wish that I could write like a Wikipedia page about my books, where I have all of these other things. But I guess I kind of got to the point where I realized that the reader doesn't need all of the other information, especially like smaller things that aren't actually essential to the plot, like mm-hmm. different different like types of plants that don't actually come up in the book and stuff like that. It kind of just helps me to round out the world, I suppose.
0: Well, and, you know, if you understand the background history of a character, then you'll understand what their driving motivation is. And at some point, we want the reader to get that too, but, you know, they can get it, in three sentences, whereas maybe it took us eight pages in our journal to really get to it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. What's um, something that you researched that someone who read one of your books would have, like, either have no idea you did it, or it wouldn't even occur to them to realize that the reason it sounded so awesome in the book was because you had gone out and done a bunch of deep research into the details of something?
1: I have so many examples. Um... Well, there's one book that I was writing. I've gotten a few chapters into it because I kind of planned out the first few chapters and then stopped. So funnily enough, I only have a few things written. <laughs> but um, a lot of things about um, shipbuilding and um, just, I guess, the like basic way that a ship is built, I suppose. Um, stuff like that. And then also different geography type things. Mm. Right. My my first novel that I ever wrote had a lot with preserving dead bodies, so I had to do lots and lots of research on that, and that was probably the most interesting thing I've ever had to research for a book because now I have all of this knowledge on how to do that, and it's kind
0: of strange, but
1: <laughs> I think it was kind of cool in the book.
0: Well, and it's not something that the average person Learns about, you know, the average person has a vague idea about how bread is being made, you know, so if your character's a baker, you're like, okay, my audience is going to have like this, this background knowledge, they'll have background imageries, they've been in bakeries, you know, they can supplement the story. But you're right. I mean, how many of us have actually been in a morgue? Or how many of us have been in one of those places where they're taking a dead animal, and then the result is going to be a skeleton that shows up in a museum. I mean, like, I don't think we have any background, So you can't lean on people to have that in their head already. So you have to both learn it and then present it in a way that people can understand, right?
2: Yeah,
1: I think it's actually my favorite part of writing, honestly, because I can, I think I can put things forth in a way that people can absorb, like, immediately, whereas it takes me time to actually take all the different pieces that I want, and I can put them together in any way that I want to, and for them, they get to, it in all at once right. exactly as I
0: prepared it you're like I have distilled this down to a fine wine <laughs> and it used to be a whole bunch of grapes right Mm-hmm. yeah yeah awesome all right okay cool wow wow wow, wow. I have to say I really I don't know I like research me too and, and every once in a while I go, oh, do I really have to research this for the book? Or am I just researching it because I want to? And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, awesome. All right. Okay, cool. Um, You recently had, l- let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the publishing side of things. Because you've had, at your very young age, um, a number of experiences that many of us are in the beginning of learning about or if we're readers and not writers, we may not really think about the backside of the industry or or how those books land on the shelf in front of us very much. Um, You had, I want to hear all about why and um, how you went about this recent um, publishing experience with your book, Out of Time. Um, How did you, what exactly do you mean when you say that you like, Picked a date in advance. Can you can you explain a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I knew that um, authors like Stephen King they can sign book deals before they write the book, and I was very curious about that. And I was thinking, well, do I have to wait until I'm a famous author, or can I do this myself, even with self publishing? Um, so I I had an idea for a book at the time, but I only was about two chapters into it. And then I decided that I wanted to enforce a deadline to ensure that I'd actually finish it. So I talked about it a little on Twitter uh, to my uh, reader base that's on there, but it's also a lot of authors. Um, And I decided to put it on Amazon for pre-order and see if there was any interest. And I did start to get pre-orders, so I was like, okay, I I actually have to write the book now. Um, And I got a few more chapters in, and then a month passed bringing me about two weeks away from the deadline and I was just kind of hit by writer's block and I just couldn't make myself write it and I was thinking, well, the deadline is there so eventually I'm going to end up writing it because I just trust myself with deadlines because of all of my freelance work. Mm -hmm. But then it got to five days away (laughs) from the deadline and I still had only written half of the book so I had to buckle down and write about 10,000 words a day. Mm -hmm. for three days and then i finished it
0: so you basically put yourself in a position where you had a massive you were running out of time and i do find it fascinatingly ironic that the title of the book is out of time
1: (laughs) yes um i've had many people say that to me
0: and and who who are your um primary support editors right now
1: Uh, Probably my mom and
0: my grandmother. And you did not pick up an editor when you were working with, um, uh, I know that Darkness Rise was with a publishing company. I thought maybe you might have connected with some editors there, or there's editors for hire. You mostly work within your family?
1: Yeah, mostly because I, I don't really get much from royalties at this point, and I'm just so... I'm trying to be self-sufficient, I guess. But I know that eventually I should probably try to work with other people, too, because they'll spot things that I don't so much. Right. But at this point, I'm just trying to, I guess, do as much myself as I can.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, so out of time, when did it come available? And was it through Amazon or other places? How would a person uh, read a review about it, for example?
1: Um, it came out two days ago, I believe. Um, right now I have, let me think, I have a few people I know of who are reviewing it, but I think there's only one review right now on
0: Goodreads, mm-hmm. so. But it's available in paper copy, it's not just um, Kindle.
1: Um, it's currently ebook, and then it's going to be in paperback in a few days.
0: So you felt like, in a way, your, um, the, your future readers became like your accountability buddies. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really so valuable for me if I have, there's this there's this idea that the deadline is somehow a negative thing or it's stressful. I love a deadline. I don't know about you.
1: I, I do love deadlines. I'm very much a planner and I like everything being laid out before me. I like to know when I'm going to finish things and when I'm going to do things. So
0: Yeah, and a deadline for me um, means that, there's someone outside of myself who I'll be letting down if I don't finish, and I have an easier time letting myself down than I have of letting anybody else on the planet down. If that makes some sense?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I do find that I can't really count on myself to do something if only I want to do it. So I do definitely have to get other people involved yeah. in the process.
0: So you're, the the picture on the front of Darkness Rise is that who is that the um, the girl? Oh, that was just
1: a stock image that we found that looked like the main character.
0: Okay, okay, I wasn't sure. Um, How have your siblings been involved in some of your world building?
1: Well, they're some of my biggest fans, and so they like to um, play out the different games, which I think I actually mentioned in the acknowledgments of the book. Yeah. Um, They like to, um, I guess, role play as the characters and try different things, and then sometimes they'll bring me drawings of creatures that they made, and they'll ask me if I can put them in books. So sometimes that inspires different characters.
0: Well, now, wait. You've got some interesting creatures in the forest that are, you know, on the attack. Were some of those um, actually from your siblings? Like, do you remember which ones are?
1: um, I think that Forky, I was talking to my siblings about dragons, and we were talking about different different things that could be added on, I guess, to make them unique, like antlers and Mm -hmm. things like that. So it was kind of a discussion with the group of all of us.
0: How many kids are there in the family?
1: um, There are four other than me, and all of them are younger.
0: Okay, okay, got it. So five of you were hanging out talking dragons. (laughs) Yes. Very cool. All right, awesome. And are, are they all homeschooled as well? Yeah, they are. What, um, what are your thoughts about homeschooling and how it um, may have played a role in uh, supporting you in your goals?
1: Well, I like that it was really um, individualized, I guess, because um, we didn't have to wait for anybody else since we were at our own levels and all the curriculums and everything that we used were specifically um, – I guess attuned to each of our different needs,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that made it so that we didn't really have to try to stay at the same level as other people our age. Right. So it gave us a chance to finish whenever we finished in the in the day, um, and then after that we could move on to whatever we wanted to do. And then also um, for English, um, well, one of my brothers, as an example, he's very logical. He's a logical thinker. He likes math. So his curriculums can be more focused on, um, you know, more logical views, I guess, Mm -hmm. of different things. Whereas for me, um, for my English, for example, um, my mom would do more creative writing type English things, whereas he does things that are more, I don't know how to explain it really, but I guess the
0: logical. Yeah, that's Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, okay, so you just felt like basically you weren't being held back. You are able to move forward in your zone. You know, what you were doing was was what was right for you rather than what was the average right for a group of 25 or 35 kids in a room. Yes, exactly. Got it. Now, how about when you moved on to um, college, which you did, I think, two years in a row um, over the Internet, and this is your first year of going to be physically at college, correct? Mm-hmm. Are you stepping into the college... As a junior or a sophomore, or what?
1: Um, I am a junior. That's mm-hmm. actually kind of a confusing topic because we haven't figured out for sure which credits are transferring over at this right. point. Right,
0: right, of course. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay, but you're not walking in like a freshman?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm at least a, oh, <laughs> I don't
0: actually know. Well, okay. I'm not
1: sure exactly, but yeah, yeah. not a freshman.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to have the sense of, of um okay, so you're moving in. And um and so the first two years when you were doing that online, I mean college, I've always told my kids who were homeschooled, I always said, you know, what you they were they were allowed if they wanted to to dip their toes into the school system and they both explored middle school a little bit and then they explored high school a little bit and then they're like, Yeah, we're going to college. But um I always told them college is really like very much a game changer compared to the first twelve years. How did you feel when you transitioned into the, um, which college have you been going to?
1: Um, It's Herkimer County Community College that I was doing online classes with. Sure.
0: And how was that experience?
1: It felt kind of like a continuation of high school. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I expected it to be more, I don't know, the word isn't advanced. I don't know what exactly... It just kind of felt like it was the same thing I'd already been doing, except with different grading, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I think that that might be because I had more in-depth work before that, because my mom was trying to give me more college-level work to prepare me for it. Right.
0: I do think community college is very different from a university. So where are you going um, in two days?
1: Uh, SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Oh,
0: my gosh. The college actually focuses on what you're interested in. Yes. That is brilliant. That is so exciting because usually it's like, you know, I mean, even if you go to, like, Harvard or Yale or some big school, it's like they have all these different departments. But so this – where is this university located? Tell us a little bit more.
1: It's in Syracuse, um, which is going to be quite different for me than – rural area that i've been living in right and i actually am hoping after this uh, maybe for graduate school since you mentioned yale and harvard i've kind of been set on eventually at some point in my life going to an ivy league so i'm kind of looking down that road Mm -hmm. for afterward but obviously i can't get too far ahead of myself
0: well i don't know i mean you're you're 18, you're pretty far ahead of where most people are at the age of 18, so feel free to start thinking about that PhD if you want to.
1: Yeah, I do have to um, be careful about how far I'm planning because I already know too many things about my future house, <laughs> everything that I want.
0: Right, right. Meaning?
1: Um, like, I mean, I kind of have... Every detail planned out, and I think it's kind of because I plan out all of my books so much.
0: So, you're I sort kind of thinking my life is a book. <laughs> yes. Okay. But remember, yeah, a really good book um, and a good skill for an author to have is every once in a while something just goes off and you pivot. You know, you want to like, you're, you're plotting, but then something happens and you realize that a, a, a pivot to a different plot line is going to actually be better. So, that's life. Things happen. <laughs> yes, that's true. So, um, I was really um, excited when you mentioned you're interested in the wildlife sciences, and I'm wondering what it was that sort of is moving you in that direction. I mean, what was the inciting incident, maybe, or experience in your life that caused you to really value understanding how wild creatures in the world are engaging?
1: Uh, Well, I grew up in a family that's very into hiking and camping and all of that, so I already had the basic foundation. And then I was sure that I wanted to do archaeology because Mm -hmm. I'm interested in being outside and doing field work type things. And then I watched a Disney Nature show, and I started to be very confused because I was thinking about wildlife biology instead of archaeology, and I was already sure that I was going to go for archaeology. And I guess Eventually, it got to the point when they were neck and neck, and I had to do my basic, uh, my typical um, pros and cons list, like mm-hmm. I always do. And eventually, wildlife biology won out, and now I'm pretty sure that's what I want to do. So,
0: Well, I mean, you know, I think archaeology is fascinating. I mean, I, I think everything's fascinating. I love to learn, and we're on this planet that's so richly abundant. I mean, you know, think of like a sci-fi book written about some planet where, you know, people are living in little tiny bubbles and the only thing on the planet of interest is this particular strange ore and all you can do is mine the ore and there's really nothing else you can do except, you know, drink, booze and sleep. And I mean, you know, this planet offers a lot more than a planet like that would offer. So, um, Mm -hmm. but when you think about archaeology, that's that's rich in history and, and... and all that. But when you think of wildlife sciences, that's actually in the here and the now, abundantly alive, existing, it seems a little bit potentially more relevant to be engaged in what's actually happening right now. How do you feel about the difference in the relevancy of the two topics?
1: That was actually on my um, list of pros. Um, I guess I was just thinking that there was more to be experienced, I guess, in that way, like I mean, it would be fascinating to be in Giza and find some tomb that no one knew about, but I feel like you can only go so far with that, Mm
2: -hmm. whereas
1: being in the woods and then I see like a pack of wolves or something like that, it's just a completely different kind of experience, and I think that it's almost more alive.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, humans can learn about the past, but we can't ever, we can't affect it because it's, it's it's no longer happening to happened, whereas this century is all about what humans are going to do or not do, and the effect it's going to have on all the rest of the life on the planet so yeah, I don 't want to dive just into publishing yet i'm curious about the ghost writing experience you have a I guess you have a professor who's a on the side or as their main gig is a professional ghostwriter, and they sort of inspired you to look into that. What was it that um that you found interesting about ghostwriting?
1: Um, I think that when I was younger, I heard the term and I never really knew what it meant. And I think that I kind of had an epiphany when I, when it was brought up again. And I was thinking, wait a minute, there are actually books that I could have read and they could have been from a totally different author and I just don't know it because they don't have to be credited. And so I kind of viewed it in a negative light. But because I was intrigued by it, I tried to learn more and more about it. And then it kind of got me thinking about how I tend to be better at the writing part than the marketing part, and then I was thinking I could do the writing part, and then someone else could do the marketing part, so I wouldn't really have to worry about that whole area. So that was when I started looking into trying it myself, and um, I've had, I think, three, two or three gigs so far, kind of smaller, but I definitely enjoyed it a lot. And I want to try it for bigger things, even if um, my book ends up becoming very popular and it's actually their book and they're credited and it becomes an amusement park, which is the thing that everyone keeps saying to me. (laughs) Um, I think that I will get enough satisfaction out of the fact that people are enjoying my writing to make it worth it, even if I'm not being credited.
0: Well, and if your contract is written well, I'm wondering now, because... From what I understand about ghostwriting, and I've got, I have a couple of friends that do it, and I have people I've interviewed who do it as well as writing their own stuff. Um, contracts vary all over the place. You know, sometimes your name is alluded to or mentioned. Sometimes you're f- sort of fully accredited as a co-writer. But I would imagine when it comes to the success of the book, that a contract might say it's sort of like, you know, you're an actor in a movie and maybe you're given a small flat rate to be in the movie, but you get a certain percentage of how successful it is in the, you know, the box office. So um, what do you know about the contract variations and um, how have you felt about those contracts so far?
1: Well, it tends to vary mostly depending on which third party is used, if any. So, I mean, I could work directly with clients and then I could design my own contracts and figure out exactly what I want to go into it. Uh, But, I've been using mostly um, third-party websites and such uh, while starting out just until I build a client base. Mm -hmm. So recently I've been using, like, um, Fiverr, and I've been wanting to try Readsie, but I'm still trying to work on setting up my profile for that. Mm -hmm. So I think that really it'll depend on if I can actually – contact clients directly just through my website and such and then I can focus more on the contracts and exactly what I want to include and which things are important.
0: So because you're working through a third party, it's sort of like they have flat con- contracts, you know, there's not mobility within the contract. But if you're yeah. working directly with a client, then the two of you would would customize that contract. Mhm. Got it. Got it. All right. Interesting. So um, are you also, like, restricted from ever mentioning that you wrote something?
1: There are some contracts that include that that I've seen, but
0: I haven't had that happen yet. So if something you write is successful, you're allowed to, like, go on Twitter and be like, I'm so happy for so-and-so, you know, their storyline, their ideas were great, and I was thrilled to be able to, you know, ghostwrite this for them. Like, you might or might not be able to say that depending on your contract.
2: I
1: believe that for the ones that I've done so far, I would be able to do that if I wanted to.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. My gosh, you have dipped your toes into so many things, including if I'm looking at my list here correctly, um, and you've mentioned you have a website, which I've seen, but also you, um, you said you were inspired by a YouTuber named Michelle Schusterman, who um, her channel is what? It's like about ghostwriting and traditional publishing. Tell us a little bit more about her.
1: Uh, well, I found her channel around the time that I was first trying to decide if ghostwriting was something I was interested in, and she talked a lot about um, the, the, just even the rate that she was able to charge people for it, and I was completely amazed that people are willing to pay so much uh, for someone to write their book for them, and so I think that was kind of what hooked me in the beginning, as much as I hate to admit that it was kind of more about the money than the writing at that point. But, um,
0: well, we have to pay our Yeah, bills. it was
1: mostly, she had a lot of really informative videos, but then she also would be able to talk more about the internal, I guess, um, conflicting emotions that come with being a ghostwriter. Oh. And she's very open about it and kind of talks about the things that people wouldn't normally talk about when it comes to ghostwriting.
0: What about her viewpoint on traditional publishing?
1: She also has very contr- uh, contradicting views on that as well. So she is very, she's very strongly. Um, yeah, she has a new series actually where she talks about all the things that she hates about traditional publishing and kind of goes off on traditional publishing. But then she also talks about how she wouldn't go down the self-publishing route, or at least she doesn't know if that's something she'd want to do because she's very. Into the traditional publishing world at this point, so it's kind of interesting <laughs> to see how her opinions vary and kind of contradict each other because she's still trying to make up her mind about it. So I'm kind of interested to see exactly where they end up falling. So as, she
0: has a uh, love hate relationship yeah. with traditional publishing at this moment. Yes, that makes sense. I think a lot of us, you know, end up having something where it's like we want it to work really well and then there's these things that are going on that are driving us crazy but yeah Mm -hmm. so you said she has a whole series about it it sounds like someone who's uh, curious to explore these topics you actually recommend her as someone to go just you know not like go follow her and believe everything she says but you feel like she offers up good content for people who are exploring the topic themselves
1: yeah definitely she's also very um, she tries to remind people that they, it's okay if they don't believe what she believes, and that these are just her opinions. So good. I don't think I think that she does a good job of saying it in a way that shows that it's merely her opinion. And she even will sometimes tell you other channels that have different opinions that you can check out, which is one of the things I like about her videos.
0: So is she what inspired you to get involved in um, a YouTube channel for your own work? I've
1: actually had countless YouTube channels over the years, and I don't even remember when I made my first one, but I kind of, as I've gone between different interests, I've had different YouTube channels, and none of them really stuck,
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: because I've always been into filmmaking, so Mm -hmm. I've always been kind of leaning towards uh, videos and stuff like that, and it was only recently that I decided to do one that was more focused on writing. Mm -hmm. My current channel is actually not um, about writing at all. It's a college YouTube channel, but then I have some side channels that are more focused on the writing.
0: Got it. You said, I think that you are, uh, what is it? You're creating comedy skits that are relatable to writers and readers. Does that mean like literally you're sort of making fun of or laughing at the situations that writers and readers find themselves in? Kind of. It's,
1: for example, um, I only have a few up right now, but one of them is how writers read and so oh, it's me going through the book and um, it has my thoughts as I'm reading it. Yeah. And it's like just different things that we focus on as writers just too much. Like even chapter one and whether or not it's spelled one or if it has a one and which one <laughs> is correct.
0: Now, I don't care about those type of details, but I have to say, you know, I mean, I think we would all imagine that if someone was a screenwriter or a film producer or an actor, that when they watch a movie, their experience is, even if it's not their own movie, it's going to be so distinctly different than it is for someone who doesn't work in the field because they're going to see things and know what's going on in the background that the rest of us are clueless about, right?
1: Definitely. Um, being someone who makes my own short films and stuff like that, I always feel like when I'm watching a movie. I can see the cameras behind the screen just because mentally I'm thinking about all those different people there right. with all the different equipment, even things like that.
0: I have this thing where um, my, I don't, so my son, when he was about roughly nine, um, he was actually involved in a, in a professionally made short film. It was like a 23 minute long film and it actually went like around the world, all the different film festivals, and it won awards, and it was tons of fun. And so I, was, I got to be there, you know. I'm the mom with the kid. And, and it was amazing, all these insights, and to see all, all the ways in which these things are done. And, and you're right. It's like, you know, I'll watch a movie now, and, you know, you'll have a, a character, who, two characters are involved in a really intense conversation. And, you know, one of them's looking at the other one. And the other one's looking at the other one. And when they look at each other, all you see is the back of the head of the other person, right? And then I'm, I'm always thinking to myself, I wonder how many times she like had to say that line to that character before they thought she got it right. And then do they have to pause and take a drink of water and stand still and not move while the camera gets rolled around behind the other person and then that person gets his turn to say his line three or four or five times, you know, and she's like nodding her head. And every once like, in a while, you'll notice, like... I was watching something, oh my god, it was last night, and this guy opens a um, a chest freezer, so the actor lifts up the chest freezer with his left hand and looks into the chest freezer, and then the camera angle switches, and of course, it's the same exact moment in the story, and now he's got his right hand holding up the chest freezer. <laughs>
1: Yes, I notice things like that all the time.
0: And I'm like, they did that because I realized if it was the other arm, it'd be blocking the camera angle. And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) So, yes, when you're a writer and you start reading books after you've tried writing one, oh, it does, I don't know, in a way, it's annoying. (laughs) Yes, I
1: also kind of feel like I see plots, plot twists and such, like, miles away.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah, I know. Right. Oh. Did you, does that bum you out or do you enjoy it because you're wondering if you're right and it's sort of like you're challenging yourself to figure it out?
1: I think it's frustrating, but not because I'm not enjoying it, but also because sometimes they actually will get me and I'll be like, how in the world, how can I call myself a writer? If I didn't <laughs> see that possibility.
0: Well, now that, but that's, that's actually reassuring. If they can fool me, I'm really happy because then I'm like, okay, this means that my story is going to be able to catch people off guard, including the writers. I want writers to read my book. So, I want to be able to catch Sometimes what scares me is the idea that my plot is going to be so flippant obvious. And I can't yeah, know if it true. will cuz I'm that for, I'm the person who wrote it. I can't I can't read it that way anymore, you know?
1: I do feel like Whenever I actually know someone who reads one of my books, then afterward, I kind of jump on them with all these questions like, did you see it coming? Did you even consider this possible plot line? What did you think was going to happen? Right. Because yeah. I have to get the feedback from somebody, and I can't really do that to my readers,
0: well, who I, was, I don't know. Well, I was just going to ask you, what are you doing about beta readers?
1: Um, mostly family members at this point. And every once in a while, I'll ask people on Twitter, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. But I haven't
1: actually really uh, done that. With this book, I was going to do beta readers, and then I ended up running out of time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And
1: so I kind of just had a few family members read it.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's worth, um, I don't want to say upping your game because your game is very, very high already. But what I mean is I think it would be worth it for you to find the time at some point in the next you know, quarter of the year or something to, you know, look into connecting with um, another professional writer who would be interested in doing a beta swap with you. Just because my, my friends and family who have beta read for me, some of them have done an incredibly good job. But I don't know. I mean, your mom and your grandma, are they professional writers because that they can bring that to the, the fore? No. Yeah. It's just, it makes a difference. And, and the thing is too, cultivating a good relationship because you can have someone offered a beta read with you. And if you have a phone conversation with them and somehow it's not feeling right, you know, maybe it's going to be a waste of time because you guys are not a good fit, but I think it's worth, I've got a, a, a beta reader I connected with twice over the last week and we picked out our dates to do our swap. And I'm just, I can tell we're a good mesh and I'm really thrilled because we both have a high level of experience and we don't have that friends and family, you know, want to make sure the other person feels good limitation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I get that
0: for sure. Yeah. 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 Awesome. All right. So we, we've still got, you know, like a solid almost 13 minutes here. And so I'm wondering if you would be willing to talk a little bit about your experiences with publishing and let's just, Let's just start off a little bit with sort of what are the basic building blocks that go into publishing a book? Because a lot of people are not really sure what those are. So when you think, I'm going to publish this book, what is it that's on your to-do list of these things need to happen before it's ready to go out to a reader?
1: Um, I mean, obviously, there's the writing the book part, which sometimes apparently I do in the wrong order.
2: <laughs> and um,
1: after that, I guess... Um, There's, of course, the editing, but I've had a lot of trouble with edits because I'll get a book out and then I'll keep finding typos and plot holes, and Mm -hmm. it's hard to tell which, what amount of edits, I guess, or how many rounds of edits is enough. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's one of the things that helps having beta readers um, for. Yes and
0: no, they're not an editor, you know, it's still, beta reading is very different than an actual professional editor, for sure.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, Also, formatting, which I've always done myself, but I'm actually considering hiring someone, Mm
2: -hmm. because
1: as much as I want to be good at everything, it turns out that I'm not. So I'm going to have to get some other people involved with that. And I think the hardest part with self-publishing on Amazon um, rather than um, doing traditional publishing or indie publishing or whatever right. the difference is, which I still am confused about, right. um, is setting up the paperback. It's very difficult, or at least for me, um, actually setting it up with the cover and the back cover and the spine because it tends mm-hmm. to, even though I use Amazon's uh, the um,
0: their template or call something, call-
1: Yes. Even when I use Amazon's template, I find that the sizing always ends up being wrong. So I just Mm -hmm. kind of put it off, which is why the out of time one isn't up yet. Oh,
0: okay. 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 So, well, I'm looking at darkness rise here. Um, Is there something on here that you wish was different than it came out? I mean, at least the photo, you know, the color, you know, when I'm opening it up right now, so I can see the spine, I can see the front and the back at the same time. I mean, Obviously the image that that dragon thing, by the way, you've got the girl, but then above it you've got what looks like um sort of like a shadow image of a dragon type of creature. Where did that come from? Is that also a stock photo?
1: Mhm, yeah, it was all one thing actually. it kind of we were planning on putting lots of different pieces together, but then I saw that photo when I was kind of browsing, yeah, and it was just literally perfect, exactly as it was.
0: It is. You, did you have to give them uh, get permission to use a the photo?
1: Uh, they had a dark stroke had um, an account on there, I guess, or a subscription or something. So they were able to get it, and then they designed the cover.
0: Got it. Okay. So, so for this book, at least, you worked with darkstroke dot uh, Darkstroke books. Books, right. Well, I'm sorry. I should say to to our listeners, the website is darkstroke.com. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I love. So one of the things I've always liked in a book is when, like, you have your acknowledgments here. And this is where you talked about your younger siblings. And apparently you owe credit to your cat, Luna. By the way, Luna was the name I had chosen. If my second child had ended up being a girl, Luna would have been her name. It was a boy, so no, no, I did not name him Luna, but um, <laughs> who aided me in the creation of Forky, yeah. But I always think it's really beautiful when the acknowledgments include, you know, basically the team. I think that's that might be what a lot of people are looking for when they decide to pursue traditional publishing, is the sense that they are going to step into and be embraced by a team of people who have their own motivation for wanting you and your, your career, your writing career to succeed. And, and every time I, for me, when I look for, um, you know, when you're going to query agents and you're trying to come up with your list of agents to query, some people will just go out and start looking at literary agencies. I tend to go into the world of comps, all the different books that might be in the genre where I want my book to show up, And then I will read the acknowledgements. And when I've got an author just gushing about their agent, their editor, and can't, you know, and and the stories of, you know, how many times did I call you at 2 in the morning sobbing, you know, whatever. You know, and I'll be like, okay, this Mm -hmm. person, this author loved this agent so much. Now I'm going to go check out this agent. So what do you, right now, do you feel like um, you'd like to have a sort of a team of people that you're working with consistently? It's hard to
1: say because um, I've tried so hard to get a literary agent before and I feel like that's kind of where you have to start for that whole path I guess and I just never had any agents interested. I've queried probably hundreds of agents overall over the past few years and I don't I don't want to say I gave up exactly. I kind of Decided that I wanted to try the traditional publishing. I mean, not traditional publishing. The I wanted to try the self-publishing route. Right. And actually, there's another YouTuber that was really helpful with that decision, um, and that's Sarah Cannon. Mm -hmm. She was. Let's see. I think she published. I don't know how many books now, but she's been self-publishing for ten years, and she's been extremely successful. And. Her channel has made me very, very exciting, very, very excited about trying different methods for self-publishing, mm-hmm. and the marketing for me has always been the hardest part of the whole thing. Yeah. Just ch- trying to get people to buy my book when I don't really have anything to stand on, I guess, really, because um, I mean, I mean of no, 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 no,
0: sorry, <laughs> um, none of my
1: books have really been successful yet, so.
0: Well, it depends on how you define success. So what you're saying is none of them have caught the attention of a really really large number of people and had super high sales. Yes. That area of success is where you want to see growth.
1: It's I'm very bad at like figuring out exactly how I define success because mm-hmm. it changes so often my view of it. I mean, if I have one person who my book changes their life, then I mean, I'll call that a success. But I also do want to try to reach as many readers as possible.
0: Yeah. Well, sure. Because then you raise the chances of a larger number of people having their life improved.
1: Exactly. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when if you just recently turned 18, then you were querying people when you were not an adult. Do you think that some of the agents may have just not known what to do about that?
1: That is something that I considered, especially since I've been on Twitter and I've had a pretty good um, following on there. So I was thinking people could have looked me up and then decided that it wasn't worth it to try to get involved with someone who's younger. Um, So that could probably be part of it. Um, I'm not sure. I think maybe at some point I might try again if I decide to, if self-publishing isn't going well. Mm -hmm. But there are definitely a few more things that I want to try.
0: Well, and you can mix it up. I interviewed, if you want to check out, I think, um, here, I'm going to look it up really quick so I make sure I get this right. Um, So, folks, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Voice of Vashon here on 101.9 FM KVSH. My name is March Twisdale, and I have been talking with Corinne Boley about, wow, gosh, you're just going to have to go check out the show, and then you'll know everything we've been talking about. You can go to marchtwisdale.com, and then you'll want to click under Podcasts and go to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and you will um, see her there and a whole bunch of other authors. And right now, I'm suggesting that you check out um, N.J. Simmons. Um, and she is right now, she's like set, uh, six back on my podcast list right now. And what's really cool is that she goes into detail about how she has traditionally published. She has self-published. She's currently working on a series with a co-writer and people will talk about how co-writing is going to drive you crazy, but she and her co-writer are just incredibly, totally happy and successful working together and she approaches it like a business she you know was a businesswoman, very effective in her field uh, for a while and then she's like I'm married I'm going to have a kid I want to not be leaving my family for a week at a time to travel off to this or that city in the world to do my job and decided to dive into the writing piece and so she's going to be a brilliant listen for you. I think and a reminder that why not like once a month you know send out a query letter to some you know high-pick agent who you think is awesome who write you know who wants what you're writing and just do that continuously because if you pick up an agent and they sell a book to an editor for a publishing company that does not mean that you can't also be over there self-publishing you know your trilogy or something you can do both
1: yeah that's a good point
0: And then there's, like, Michelle Segara, but she's had different publishers that that she's worked with that have carried different series that she's done forward. Jessica Brody, um, her interview aired last month. And so I'm curious if you have heard of her book, which is um, Save the Cat Writes a Novel. Oh, I think I have, but I've never read it. I'm going to recommend really shifted without changing my story it shifted it in ways that were super powerful and gave me labels and concepts and I also interviewed her but I would if I were you I would check that out I think it's very empowering for the writer yeah I definitely will so what would you like to chat about before this interview is over
1: um maybe my upcoming project
0: yes go for it tell us
1: okay so it's going to be a series young adult Um, It is a supernatural mystery series called uh, Supernatural Detective. I have the first three books planned out right now.
0: Supernatural Supernatural Detective is the um, title of the trilogy, not the title of the first book.
1: It's the title of the series and also the title of the first book.
0: Got it. Um, Okay,
1: cool. I'm not sure how many books long it's going to be, but I actually think that I'm going to go far past the third book. Um, I'm kind of setting it up in a way where it can go for a long time because it's more of, it's kind of like Sherlock, I guess, Yeah. Um, in the type of mystery. um, I guess someone could really pick it up at any book. So each book is going to stand alone.
0: Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes.
1: And let me see. I know it's going to be self-published. I've heard about uh, rapid release. I heard that that's a good strategy. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to
0: write them quickly,
1: release them quickly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rapid release for folks who are listening right now and are not sure what that means. It's a it, it basically in the world of self-publishing, the idea is that readers are voracious and if you are putting out a book once a year or something, you'll tend to have your audience uh deplete or sort of deflate or go elsewhere because they're waiting so long. And so rapid release is where a self-published writer will write, you know, maybe six books or three or whatever in advance and then they're like, Okay, guess what? I've got this awesome series and I'm gonna throw one down every two months or every six weeks or something like that. And the idea is that it can really build your audience because the people who are hungry instantly get their next meal as soon as they finish the first one type of idea. Do you agree with that? hmm Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So so oh my gosh, I have to say, just supernatural detective instantly my my I'm like I don't think I've seen a detective series that specifically focuses on like a supernatural super sleuth or something. I'm excited. Yeah, I am too. All right, great. Well, you will let me know when you're ready to do that rapid release so that I can participate, right? Oh, definitely. Okay, great. And you know, um, if you want, especially if it's sometime in 2022 or 23 or something, I would be more than happy to have you back on the show and uh, we could talk about it. And, and that might be a way of giving people an idea what's coming at them as well. That'd be great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Corinne, for joining me today. Thank you.